Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rick Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to finance professionals about their views on investments, not always in their professional capacity but also in their personal capacity. My guest today is Jaak Conradi. He's the Chief Executive Officer and the Portfolio Manager at Peregrine Capital. He's an actuary and uh, he started his career in 2006 with Alt Mutual. And he joined Peregrine a year later in 2007. Listeners will remember I spoke to Jock on this podcast in January this year. And you may remember that he's the guy who started to manage his father's portfolio while he was still at university. The podcast is still available on moneyweb.co.za. It has been one of the most popular downloaded podcast this year. So if you haven't listened to it, log in. It's available and listen to it. Jock, thank you so much for coming into studio again today. I would like to talk about emotion and the way amateur investors should look at positive performances and negative performances because sometimes emotion comes in. Every single asset manager would say, listen, take emotion out of decisions, but it's not always that easy and it's not always easy to know whether there is no emotion involved in a decision. So let's start off with emotion. How do you think people should, and especially young people, should view emotion and identify it when they take decisions? Hi, Raik, and it's great to be here again. So look, it's interesting that when you start your investing career, and especially someone like me that comes from a numerical and let's say mathematical background, you think that investing is a lot about analysis and going through the numbers and building models and forecasting things. And that certainly is a key part of it. But the longer you in investments, the more you realize emotions are very much as important. And it's a longer one to learn because it's almost, I think there's a lot you can do by reading and trying to understand and learn from other people. But a lot of the experience, yeah, comes from living through various cycles and dealing with your own emotions through those cycles, seeing how you feel, how you need to behave. So it certainly is a one with a long learning curve. The one thing I'd say here is markets behave in the way they do because humans have emotions. That's why we have crazy bull markets like the tech bull market of 98 and 99. People see their neighbors and their friends making money and they can't help themselves but chase the market upwards. That's why people chase it and that's why things get very expensive at the top. And then when bear markets happen and markets go down, no one likes taking a loss. People would rather sell out than continue having losses. And that's why markets also massively overshoot on the downside. So if you understand that, then you can realize that having stable emotions and understanding your own emotions can actually give you a meaningful edge. And one simple rule of thumb is always consider whether you should be doing the exact opposite of what you feel like doing. Now, you shouldn't automatically act that way, but if you feel euphoric and very happy and you love a company, I've learned that over time, that should be an immediate signal to say, wait a second, in previous times in my career when I felt like this, it was a good time to sell that share. So I don't have to automatically sell it, but at least I need to consider a sell decision. And in the office, when everyone's bearish and no one thinks that load shedding will ever be fixed and that SA shares will ever go up again, maybe that's the time you want to consider buying. So it's not an automatic rule, but certainly you should invert that emotion and think like, 
do the opposite of what my natural instincts are telling me here. Is that not a contrarian view? Because not all professional investors are contrarian investors. Yeah, correct. That's certainly what's worked for us. That's our model. We want to, I mean, sometimes you want to be there with the crowd, but most of the time you're going to actually make money if you do the opposite of everyone else. Because if everyone loves a share, it's already expensive and it's probably too late to buy it. Not always, but a lot of the time. So I guess that's inherently in our business and our team, we've got a bunch of contrarians. We like to do our own thing and not just follow the crowd. And that's certainly how, how we think. Do you look at the investment decisions of other fund managers and asset managers? Do you compare it with your strategy? So there's two aspects there. I think there's a lot of really great global investors that I follow and that I studied, let's say, to get a lot of my investment knowledge. Those are guys like Buffett, where I've read every single annual letter. I've read basically every book about him. Guys like George Soros, that was really the first macro global hedge fund manager, Stan Druckenmiller that worked for Soros and then ran his own thing. So these are some of my investment euros that I follow. So certainly, whenever you see them uh, speak about markets, you always listen. And then, let's say in South Africa specifically, we are always looking for any piece of information uh, we get. So when we see other fund managers speaking, we'll listen. But in that case, it's less to follow, but to say, is there anything interesting I'm hearing there that could inform my view of a company? But then another interesting bit there is over time, you realize that you need to understand the prospects for a company, but you also need to understand what the other investors in that share is thinking. So I'll give you an example. One of my first success stories is figuring out that Capitec was a great investment back in 08 or 09. We might have spoken about it on one earlier occasion. But the interesting thing for me there was when I went to those results presentations, you saw the banks analysts of the sell side firms and other long onlys there. And the only thing they were asking about, Drake, was how's your unsecured lending book doing? What's happening with the impairments? How's the impairments been in the last few months? And they completely missed the wood for the trees. And the real thing with Capitec was it was going to be the biggest transactional bank in SA. Now, that part of the business was small, but I think I opened an account for my wife at the time, and she just told me she absolutely loves this thing. But how did you know that? Because at that stage, they were still very, very small, and they were a very you know focused on micro-lending. They were, but if you spent the time and you spoke with management... Like Rian Stassen was the CEO and Andre was the FD back in the day. Microlending was the big money spinner, but the long-term vision was always to be an amazing transactional bank. And they were using the microlending profits to build a transactional banking. So you could meet with management if you took the time and you could see that was their vision. And if you open a transactional account for yourself or a family member, you could see how good that was. But no one was focused on that. So that almost gave us the confidence that we're seeing something here that's not priced in, that people aren't seeing because they're all obsessed with the unsecured side and they're missing the, the transactional opportunity. Now, it certainly turned out better than I would have thought. I certainly didn't think that sit here with 20 million clients and kind of 15 years later. But you could see there was something there the market was missing. So that's also why it's useful to see what others are thinking, because maybe you can see what they're missing and, and what you're seeing. How does that differ from somebody liking a company like, let's say, MTN, for example, and a person getting great service from one of the outlets in a mall? Because that changes your perception of the company. Suddenly you think, listen, I received a lot better service from MTN than Vodacom previously, so let me invest in MTN, because that swings emotion and perceptions. Yeah, so I would typically tell people to think about the companies you interact with and where you see good service and you don't, and whether that can be a potential investment decision. Now, what you always have to think about is, 
how big is that company? How many different products does it have? And how big is the product that you kind of engage with? So if we go to the capital example, they only did banking and transactional banking was in the end all they were after. So having a good view of that is almost the whole business. We're MTN, they're in like in 25 different countries and Nigeria is the biggest profit generator and South Africa is maybe 20% or 15% of the valuation. So that is a relevant data point, but it's only on a small part of the business and it's only one. So I think it's always worth looking at those things. But then in MTN, you've got to also say, what's the Naira dollar doing? And maybe the Naira has halved in the last year. So there's always many things that go into investment decision. I'd look at things like that, but you have to also look at the complete picture. Yeah, you can't take an investment decision based on a good employee in a mall. That could be quite dangerous. Let's talk about consistency because whenever you invest and you have a portfolio, you would like to see the portfolio increase in value and consistently so. And sometimes I think most asset managers send out statements every quarter and sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. And of course, when you invest in equities, it's a linear growth trajectory is impossible. No asset manager can achieve that. Do you think it should influence an investor, especially investment decisions, if there are maybe two or three consecutive quarters with a red number and which raises some concerns? So look, investing, what we do is we look at a company or a share and you try to predict how that company will perform in the future. The future inherently is uncertain. And there's this thing called randomness where things can happen that no one could have predicted. So it's an interesting thing when you, again, start off in your career and you look back you look back at a company share price graph and there was obviously a certain set of events happened that caused that. However, on a forward-looking base, so people often think that is the only path that could have been traveled. Yet the future is always probabilistic. There's a range of outcomes that can happen and you cannot perfectly know. There's good scenarios that could happen to a company, but something could go wrong and a bad outcome could happen. So we always think probabilistically and you try to find companies where there's a high likelihood of you doing well and good things happening, but you can almost never avoid the chance that something happens that's unforeseen or purely random and where you will lose money. So how does one deal with that? You diversify your ideas somewhat. You go bigger in your best ideas where you're most sure, but you can never be 100% sure on almost anything investing. So you build a diversified portfolio of independent good ideas. And then if you do that well, most of the time things will go well. Because if you're right and seven or eight out of 10 of your ideas work, then that will offset the one or two or three where it doesn't work. So I think if you diversify nicely, you can have some consistency, but it's impossible because you're, you're dealing with the future. It's impossible to have perfect consistency unless you've got cash in the bank. But if you have cash in the bank, you can't outperform what the interest rate is. So you have to take some risk to generate excess returns, and that, that is part of what investing is. If you then look at someone's performance, when would poor performance be a sign that something's not working? I think that depends on the length of the track record. How long has someone been consistently doing well? Because that gives you lots of confidence that their process or their philosophy consistently generates outperformance. So the longer a track record you have, I think the longer of a period of underperformance you can stomach and say, it's just bad luck or randomness. The longer it goes on, the more likely is that there's some signal there. Is something with the process not working? Did they lose key staff members? Did the market environment change and their philosophy doesn't work in that? So you always have to consider it. But I think the longer the track record, the longer you have to wait where it's signal and not just noise. You will always see when asset managers market their products, there's always an asterisk that says, you know, past performance is not indicative of future performance. How important is past performance when somebody would evaluate or consider different collective investments or unit trusts? How important is that past performance? 
I would say that there's always a range of things to consider when considering it. And that range is who's the people managing it, kind of what's the company behind it, what's their approach for making money. But out of all those things, I'd say the most important thing has to be past performance because that's numerical, factual, and proven. It's not the only thing, but for me, it's it's the most important of all the things. That's also how I pick the fund managers I learn from globally or admire. That's why you pick Buffett to study from. He's made, I think, 10,000 or was it 100,000 times initial investment over 60 years. I mean, that past performance shows you at least he knew what he was doing for an extended 60 or 70 year period of time. It's too long to be randomness. Where if you look at someone with a one or two year track record, it's just way too short to judge if it's investment skill or, or luck. Because in the short term, anyone throwing darts can pick a few winners, right? A year or two is too short a time period to identify skill from luck. The longer the time period gets, the more sure you are that it's skill and, and not luck. Now, that's an interesting perspective, but I think it's in many ways logical. But in many ways, the choice of an asset manager is very, very important, sometimes even more important than choosing the actual investment. How do you research the quality of an asset manager? Is it just based on performance or should somebody look at something else or other metrics? So look, I would agree with you that it's a hard thing to do. And I would also say, I'll give you some of my views, but this is not our core game. Obviously, our core business is finding the shares that's going to go in our portfolio that will outperform. So that's where we spend all our time. And let's say for all of our team members, we just have our money and our funds because we can see what we do and we, we back ourselves. So I don't spend a whole lot of time picking other managers because that's... No, I'm talking about from an investor's perspective, you know, somebody getting into the market. So I think there, it has to be a good starting point looking at... 10 and 20 year returns, right? That has to be some kind of starting point to say, what is the long-term track record here? That's as good a place as any to start looking for it. The other thing I think is vital is to try to see how correlated is this return with the JSC? So basically, if the return is just 1.1 times the JSC or 1% more in the typical year, but it's always when the JSC is up, it's up. When the JSC is down, it's down. Then you could just as well potentially take index exposure. So I think it's a good sign if the return is somewhat uncorrelated with the overall market, because that identifies that this manager has some way of picking opportunities that's not just matching the overall index. They've got a process of going through the 200 companies in SA and finding the ones that they think will outperform. And then the other thing to do is if you have investment skill, you can go read the manager's annual or quarterly letters, see how they think about markets, see how they write, see if you agree with that and see if that philosophy makes sense. Yeah, but you see not many people can do that. You know, if you read something from Warren Buffett, he writes a letter to shareholders once a year and many people see it as as a bible but you know who's going to not agree with him and the same we are in south africa we've got very very good fund managers and i don't think the normal retail investor has the knowledge and the skill to disagree that's one of the core topics of this podcast is how do you evaluate a good investment and a bad investment because sometimes you can have say in a portfolio growth of 10 percent And in another portfolio, a growth of 8%, then the 8% portfolio could have outperformed the 10% portfolio because it was at vastly less risk. So let's talk about selling and buying decisions. Let's start with selling decisions because that is a difficult one. There's always emotion involved as well. So say you have an investment, let's use a unit trust, an equity unit trust. It's not performing well. How long do you hold on to it? before you sell it and also be sure that there is no emotion involved in that decision. 
I'll start with how we think about individual shares and then we see if we can take that into unit trusts. When we invest in an individual company, upfront you want to value that company. So you, you want to determine what the business is worth. So if you determine the company is worth 100 Rand, we typically buy it at 60 Rand or lower because you want some margin of safety in case you're wrong. And then as it approaches fair value, you firstly have to update your fair value if there's new economic news or news from the company. But if your fair value remains updated and it approaches your fair value, you have to exit it. You have to have the discipline and you can't fall in love with something. I think a manager is somewhat different because you're not buying into a fund for the, what the fair value is. You're buying it for the skill of the manager. What I'd say you do is you first have to look at why you invest here. Is it someone with a very long track record? If it's based on a 10 or 20-year track record of outperformance at lower risk in the market, then I think you want to stick with that for a fairly long period of time. I think people often want to cut things too early if there's short-term underperformance because that human nature is you want to chase the short-term winner. You want to chase the best performer of last year. So if you have properly made your decision based on a long-term analysis, then I think you should have quite a long period over which you make any sell decision. You shouldn't do it rashly. However, if you're chasing someone where they had a very good one-year performance or they may be a new manager, then I think you much more quickly have to potentially look at making an exit decision because then you made that more on a gut feel or with limited information and maybe three or six months of bad performance quickly unwinds the one year of good performance and then was there really any skill that you picked. So I think if you did your analysis properly up front, you should give yourself quite a long period before you change and you shouldn't change it too often. If you put your portfolio together properly, I think it should be fairly stable. And we see a lot of pension funds and informed investors and let's say the university endowments in the US that's kind of model allocators. They'd have fairly stable long-term portfolios because they do a lot of work up front to pick the right manager. And you need quite a lot of evidence then to prove that you were wrong with that decision. Do you think people investing directly in shares hold those shares for longer than people who invest through collective investment schemes like unit trusts? I haven't seen analysis of the data there. I guess that the one benefit of owning individual shares is that one thing people do is when they have a NASPERS or a Capitec that's what done very well for them, they'll often keep that because it's their favorite share and it's a big part of their portfolio and there's a nice story linked to it. So I'm sure there's lots of wealthy people in Stellenbosch that just bought some Capitec shares early and, and kept them. And the same, there's probably many wealthy people in South Africa that got some NASPERS or bought some NASPERS and just kept it. So I think picking a really great compounder that's going to outperform for a long time and keeping that is, is one great way of, of building wealth. On the share side, the rules are somewhat different because sometimes you have to panic and sell a share because something really badly went wrong. Like Steinoff, let's say it fell 50% on the day one. That was the best ever time to sell. You yeah, Tungard, EOH. Yes. Even the next day it was down 40 again. You should sell again. So there it's it's different from my view of a fund manager because it's, it's not a diversified portfolio. It's one thing. And, and there you really have to look at what's the reality that's happening in that company and what's happened to the share price and, and how should I act. Is it a science? How much can you actually calculate and how much information should you get from other sources when you form your investment decision or how you come to a number, a fair value number? I'd say it's certainly a blend of a science and art. Being strong numerically and doing the work and going through company results is a vital ingredient. That's how you pick up EOH. You go in the financials and you go through the company notes and you go into the detail of the companies they bought and you see what's going on there. And, and that's how we could figure out there was an issue with the companies they acquired. You then look at the cash flow statement and you figure out the cash isn't tying up with the companies they're buying. So it certainly is a part of it and that's going to find you some winners and it's going to help you avoid some losers just there. But in many cases, that's not the only tool. You need to get info of how the business is doing. 
from speaking to competitors, speaking to their clients, trying a product yourself. So investing, one of my lines to our investors is, there is just no silver bullet. You need like 100 lead bullets, and each of these things is one of those bullets. You need to do the work in the financials. You need to see the, try the products, speak to other clients, speak to competitors, have your emotions in check, make sure you buy with margin of safety, because stuff could happen that even if you did all the work, a random thing can happen that kind of go wrong. But if you had margin of safety, you could still get out without a loss or, or with some gain. So unfortunately for an individual investor, it is hard because there's many things I think you've got to do right to maximize your odds, which is why maybe having some split between picking fund managers that do this as their job and trying some of it yourself if you love it is, I think, a, it's a good mix for a lot of people. What you're also saying is that many... CAs, actuaries, they look at the same set of financial results and they come to two different conclusions. One would see a buy opportunity and the other one say, listen, this is a dog, stay away. So that's a skill blended with art. Yeah, that's what makes this, I think, a beautiful game is that every single time you're buying a share, you are buying it from someone that's selling. So by definition, at that moment, there's someone with the exact opposite view. And that's what makes this, I think, the most interesting career for me is you're competing with other smart people and you always have to be learning to to maintain an edge. And I think it's one of the things that you just won't get tired for if you love learning and and love solving uh, complex problems. I know amateur investors can't see who sells a share you are buying. Can you see who actually sells the share to you when you complete a transaction? Can you see, for example, if Old Mutual sells a share and you buy it? You cannot. I believe back in the day, 25, 30 years before my time, you could see on the JSC which broker advertised the share. So I think you could at least see it's being sold through Standard Bank or through ABSA, for example. You can't. However, what you can do is if you bought a share and you want to know, sometimes there'll be an announcement to say, Alan Gray has dropped below 5% of the shares in issue. Then you know, okay, Alan Gray was selling. And you can also download company share registers. And then you don't know who you specifically bought from. But you could see during the last month, Coronation 91 went down and maybe kind of Peregrine Capital and someone else went up. So then you know roughly who it is. It is somewhat relevant to try to say, is this person potentially more or less informed than me? What are they thinking? And that's an important part of of figuring out why are they selling? Are they seeing something we're not? Or are they selling for some other reason? Might just make good money and they want to bank some profit or whatever. Would it make a difference if you could see? It would probably make a difference, right? It would make a difference because it would help you inform whether you think you have a better shot at not knowing more than the seller. Because, I mean, you typically want to be doing something if you think think you're more informed than the seller or you've done more work or have a, have a more informed opinion. Are you still nervous when you take a big position in a company? Always, always. I mean, you're obviously confident in your process and you've done this many times before, but I think there should be some level of nervousness to make sure you've done your work. You haven't missed anything. You've gone through your full process, kind of ticked all the boxes, gone through your checklist. And obviously, there's just nervousness that something random could go wrong. Even though you did everything right and there's a lot of upside, some unfortunate thing could happen that derails things. I think it's not kind of stress in the sense of it. It's more just, uh, let's say, some tension and excitement rather than pure nervousness, I'd say. Jock, thank you so much for your time today and for coming into studio and for sharing your insights with us. Awesome, Rock. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That was Jock Conradi. He's the chief executive of Peregrine Capital and he's also a portfolio manager. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.